This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 162, Evidence Part 2. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for coming back. This is the rest of my conversation with Craig DeHutt and Stuart Peck, the founders of Appian Media. Appian Media provides free resources of extraordinary quality to help flesh out and fortify the faith of Bible believers. Check them out at appianmedia.org. In this part, we discuss the testimony of the resurrection and how it paves the way for faith in other areas of study, and what we should do if and when the answers we're getting to our questions are not giving us the assurance we'd hoped for. We'll start with what I've been reading. I finally read Who Moved the Stone this year. It's a story of how a skeptic, Frank Morrison, tried to debunk the Bible story by investigating the resurrection and wound up finding faith instead. In your minds, what is the most compelling part of the resurrection narrative, and how does the resurrection set us up for faith in other aspects of our study? You know, it's it's interesting. I was just reading First uh, Peter, First and Second Peter this week, and I love how Peter talks about, hey we were eyewitnesses to these things that Christ did. I think what, what most fascinates me is the people who witnessed him resurrected afterwards. We're not talking. It was one or two people in a dark room. We're talking. It was hundreds of people that saw him walking around after they saw him dead on a cross and put into a tomb. That to me is kind of mind boggling because we, we just don't know how to (laughs) process that. Um, but it was real and they wrote about it and they profess that that's what happened. There's uh, a notable distinction we have realized as we have traveled over to Israel. I believe most of us have encountered people over here in the U.S. who try to discount whether Jesus was even a real person. Yeah. They'll use the argument that it was just a legend from a place far away. What we have heard and seen when we have traveled over to Israel is even skeptics of Christianity are not foolish enough to say that Jesus didn't exist. Over there, the history of at least a man named Jesus from Nazareth in the first century, the history is undeniable. Now, they may disagree as to whether he was the son of God or not, but no one over there is foolish enough to say, no, he wasn't real. They have to admit he was real. The evidence is undeniable. What do you then do with a man named Jesus who claimed to be the son of God, seemingly performed these miracles, and we have multiple accounts from various sources, some of them even extra biblical sources that attest to this. Now, what do we do with that? And so, again, trying to get... 21st century Americans, especially, to have at least the level of understanding that the people over there in this land have. He was real. What do you do with him? The proofs of the resurrection, I would go back to Stu's as well. It was not just that there were so many that attested to seeing him alive afterwards, but the very first witnesses of the resurrection, according to the Gospels, were women. And that's not saying disparagingly against women, but you have to understand the culture of that time. Women's testimony was discounted. If you had a crime that was witnessed by someone and you only had a woman 
who could testify in that culture and that time, her testimony was invalid. Her husband or some male figure had to at least verify it. So the fact that the Gospels, if it were a fake story that Christians were trying to make up to get you to believe, they would not have chosen the very first people to see Jesus alive as being a group of women. Mm. But they did because that's how it happened. Right. Now then, obviously, Jesus shows himself to far more people. Paul ends up saying that there were over 500 people who saw him at one time later on. But to me, there are so many reasons why if, if humans were to try and come up with a story about how God saved humanity, first of all, we wouldn't have come up with a story about how humans killed God. That's just foolishness. Secondly, we wouldn't use the proofs of that thing and lay them out in a way that at the time would have been unthinkable. But man, God does that throughout human history, doesn't he? He uses people that we would never have thought, uh, I'm sorry, you're going to use Hosea and his unfaithful wife to prove a point? Like, who would do that? Right. I'm sorry, you're going to use Paul, a persecutor of Christianity, to be one of the most prolific writers of the New Testament? Well, that, who would do that? A God smarter than we are. They hung Jesus on a cross and killed him, and God calls that victory, and it's genius. It's just amazing how, how oftentimes we see the same story, and we're living it now, where people will say, well, yeah, God, that's interesting. That's That's an interesting way to do it. But how about if we did this? You know, this might be a, a better way, a more streamlined way, a more comfortable way. It seems like it would work more effectively if we did it this way. And God says, well, you just kind of do your thing and I'll do my thing. Right. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll see how all this works out. I mean, you don't want to measure success by numbers exclusively. But this is one of the, the compelling arguments that Morrison makes in his book. I don't know if you've read the book, but I gather that Morrison is not a believer in inspiration. He's not a believer in the fullest sense of the Bible, but he is absolutely blown away by historical timelines and events and undeniable truths. Something happened here. There is an event that needs explanation. And at the beginning, of course, he's perfectly willing to find some other kind of explanation. Yeah, that's that's great. I'm, I'm dying for another explanation, but it just doesn't make any sense that there's, there's people in this generation who all they have to do to stop this scourge, all these disreputable and disrespectful Jesus preachers, all you have to do is just show them Jesus' body and it's over. Mm-hmm. Just, just show them the tomb, open it up drag out the body, and the movement's over. That's all you have to do. And it's impossible to believe that human beings wouldn't have done that if they could have done that. And the fact that there is a church, I mean, you can discount the Bible record if you want to, the fact that the church exists, that it took root at all in the first century is all the evidence that you need that they didn't do that. And they didn't do it because they couldn't do that because the body wasn't there. They had no access to it. Yep. And that that church has now permeated every culture, every continent, survived kingdoms rising and falling, even Jerusalem itself. 
uh, just a few decades after the life of Jesus, the pinnacle of Jewish political power gets leveled, but it doesn't affect Christianity. In fact, it perpetuates its spread. We would not have come up with this ourselves. And the, and the fact that it is growing and, and flourishing in all corners of the world. And uh, when you start looking at the history of how Christianity spread beyond the small country of Israel, it's incredibly impressive to consider how a message like that could spread. You think of what those, those apostles did in their lifetime. Like Stu said, it was not just a couple people in a dark corner where, hey, let's come up with this secret idea. We think this would be really beneficial to our, I don't know, reputation. No, these men and women go out of the country. They go to distances and, and places that they never would have traveled prior to that to tell as many people as they possibly can. And here we are 2,000 years later, still spreading the same message. You can make such a good case from the Bible for the resurrection. It's my belief that you use that faith in the resurrection to go into a study about the virgin birth, to go into a study about the six-day creation or about inspiration of scripture or whatever it happens to be. If God can do this, what can God not do? Yeah, I think we see that in the in the gospel accounts uh, and in Paul's letters afterwards is what do they go out and do? They, they preach the resurrection of Christ. It doesn't say that they went and they preached creation or that they preached, you know, all of these other things first, they preached the resurrection. And that was kind of the jumping off point for much bigger discussions. And, you know, frankly, uh, I think this is kind of where we can go astray with going out into the world today is we want to maybe start with a lot of those hot button issues that are very divisive, whether it's creation versus evolution, whether it's instrumental music versus not instrumental music, whatever the case might be, we want to start there. And what does that lead to? It leads to arguments and division and not bringing people to the gospel. But if we instead start with what we believe and have faith in, which is that Jesus was real, uh, he preached this gospel message, and then he died and was raised and we all have grace through that, that's a much more inviting place to go. Once you've had that conversation and gone there, then there is room to discuss other elements of that. But uh, unfortunately, so oftentimes we go to those other places and we start there and then try and backtrack to, oh, but, but Jesus was real and his res- the resurrection is real. Uh, believe that, believe that. And um it just doesn't have the same impact. Right. In fact, our, part of our daily Bible reading, uh, we just read the passage where the scribes and the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus, trying to get him caught up in things that, they, that he's saying. And so they bring to him a Daenerys and they say, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You know, you talk about hot button, hot button mm-hmm. issues. Like, uh, how do you answer this? Because no matter how you answer it, you're going to upset one or both groups, right? And Jesus, as the master teacher, brilliantly responds in such a way to not only reveal the truth, but to reveal the heart of the people who ask the question. Mm -hmm. He doesn't get lost in the weeds. Not to say that there aren't times where it's necessary. Let's talk specifics of how do we worship and what's acceptable. Does God want that kind of worship from us or does he specify something else? Those are 
important conversations to have. But Stu's absolutely right. The thing that the apostles went out and spread stemmed from a starting point of he's alive again. He was crucified and he arose from the dead. It's not just that the body can't be found. They were preaching that he was alive again and we saw him. And that's what this means. And so then it opens up this bigger, well, why did he have to do that? Why did he have to die? Well, because of our, our sin, our sin prompted a sacrifice that was, the, and then you're growing these really important conversations. I do think that in our approach, especially evangelizing to the lost, we need to follow the examples of the apostles and of Jesus, find some common ground. Even Paul was able to do that with the Gentiles who were worshiping a pantheon of gods. You know, even he is able to find a way to start with some common ground. I see that you're very religious. <laughs> he could have said, you bunch of heathens. Don't you know this is ridiculous? To no, he starts with some common ground, uh, uh, commends them for their religious nature, and then shares with them the truth. That's an intentional choice that we've been making with, with Appian Media. We started with what we believe is the most important story to tell, which was the story of Jesus. In fact, we spent more time creating that story than anything else we've done. It took us two trips to Israel to tell it. Because once you've got that foundation built, okay, wow, Jesus was a real person. These places were real. These events really did happen. Now, when we talk about King David and Jesus coming from the lineage of King David, it means something else. And now that we've established that kingship, that Davidic lineage, well, now we can go to Revelation and start talking about Jesus as the conquering victor. And it's all tied together. We're, we're choosing our projects very intentionally. And we know eventually we will start getting into stuff that we already have, let's be honest, dude, <laughs> that people don't see eye to eye on us with. And it's not so much on us, but this is what the scriptures are saying. That's going to happen. There are going to be parts of the Bible that people are going to struggle with the presentation of. But we think we think the approach is, is important. And uh, we'll see what God allows to, to be done with that. Do you struggle uh, from an archaeological historical standpoint? Do you struggle a little bit with separating the fact from the myth? I know that I was watching last night Barry and Jeremy going into the the bowels and and seeing where the manger supposedly actually was and where the birth actually took place and and of course all of this is is very ancient tradition that is based on ancient tradition, et cetera. There's, there's no concrete reason to believe that this is actually true, but it's what has always been accepted as being true because we wanted to believe that it was true. Is that a, a valuable exercise of looking at things that may or may not be the place where Jesus was born, may or may not be the place where Calvary was, et cetera? Yeah, I think um, I think we're very careful uh, throughout the documentaries, and we'll continue to be throughout the things we make to not pinpoint and say this is the spot because we don't know, uh, but instead say things like this is the traditional location. You know, that's one of the beauty, beautiful things about going to Jerusalem or going to those places is a lot of times they've kind of pinpointed that there is something important here because they put a church on top of it, 
And uh, it may not look exactly like it did in the first century, but we know that somewhere in this area is where it was. But, uh, you know, I personally don't struggle with that. Well, I, I take that back. I mean, like I, I have to have an open mind about it. Like, you know, I know what I grew up thinking and, and, and picturing the manger to be like. Mm-hmm. And if I just wanted to say, no, 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 this is the way I've always pictured it, even after seeing evidence that maybe it was something different um, than I guess maybe there are, there may be people out there that do struggle with that. But um, I, I think that's all part of just having a soft, open heart. That's willing to um, willing to put aside maybe my traditions or my particular viewpoints and just opening up and saying, okay, what is uh, the scripture rush over me? And mm-hmm. what is it saying to me? But I don't want to discount people who do struggle with that. So. Right. It's funny because someone just left a comment on our YouTube video as we were covering the information of this, this cursed tablet that they found from Mount Ebal. It's a fascinating story. It is one of those, as of right now, we can't put our finger down and say, this is absolutely from the late Bronze Age. And this is something that Joshua put there. Right now, there's still peer reviews and things happening, but the implications of it are very exciting. But someone commented and said, I don't care what they pull out of the ground. There's nothing you will find to convince me that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Yeah. And my response, because I did, Appian Media basically (laughs) said, we discourage that kind of study of the Bible. Yeah. If you've already come to a conclusion and said, I don't care what you show me, I don't care what they find, I'm going to believe this. None of us should ever approach the Bible that way. Right. And so mm-hmm. if we've got in our head, you know, to go back to your example of, of Jesus and where he was born, the Bible says he was born in Bethlehem. And I'll stand on that firmly. The Bible says that he was born and laid in a manger, so a feeding trough for animals to imply that animals were nearby, right? Mm-hmm. Historically, they would not have had a wooden barn as we see in American history. It was impossible. They didn't have structures like that in the first century. Historically, more than likely, in that area, he was likely underground to some degree. That's where animals were kept in first century Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. Now, can we say what the proprietors of the Church of the Nativity say? This is the alcove where the manger was, where the child was like, no, absolutely not. We can't. I can't. And it is difficult, especially with sites like that or the the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where where traditionally in Jerusalem, they believe Golgotha was and the tomb was. It's so hard, all the structure that's been built on top, you've really got to use your imagination and Photoshop all that out in your mind. (laughs) But I can say with absolute certainty, if it wasn't this spot, we're within a few hundred yards of it, like, Bethlehem in the first century was not large. Right. And so to be able to say, hey, the the Bible said that he was born with animals because there was no room in the guest house, honestly, is what the word in likely implies, of a small town. It was not a major city at the time. It was a small town of Bethlehem. We're within a few hundred yards of this thing. And I'll stand on that. As far as Jesus and his tomb, man, if it's not the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, we're like a quarter mile from it. There were not very many spots in that area that were outside the city wall that would have matched the description and that history over time has pretty consistently stayed in that one spot. I'm less inclined 
to be drawn to the locations that 2,000 years later look like the picturesque images we've made in our minds? Yes, there's a spot a little farther out in Jerusalem where there is a cliff face that 2,000 years from the event kind of looks like a skull. That's not proof. That location was only suggested within the last, I don't know, 100 years. I'm less inclined to lean towards those locations. But Appian Media has to be very careful. We are not going to be like, this was it and this wasn't and you're wrong. We constantly emphasize if God really wanted us to know the exact places, he would have provided GPS coordinates. Let's not get so hung up on something that God himself didn't feel compelled to reveal. We're not making treasure hunter documentaries. Uh, You'll find plenty of those out there for different biblical artifacts and different uh, biblical places. And that's just not what we're out to do. We don't want people to sit in a Bible class and go, all right, we're going to search for the Ark of the Covenant. And then we know we're not going to find the Ark of the Covenant by the end of it. Um, what we, what we, that'd be super cool. That would be super cool. Um, we would rather, exactly. We would rather talk about and emphasize the culture of the places, the geography of the places, the things that we can go and look at and study and then use to decipher the text. And that's, you know, when you get into the, obviously, uh, into the new Testament, there is little to no evidence of where these Christians met within these cities. You're given a city, and that is about it. And so, um, for us to go treasure hunting around those places would be really uh, would be pretty fruitless. But studying the culture and the geography, and then making application for us today, because those people were real and those people struggled with things that we still struggle with today, I think is extremely powerful and can really help somebody with their study. And then there are sites like the Valley of Elah, where if you read for Samuel, and I didn't really catch on to this until Barry pointed it out, but the, the writer of First Samuel gets very specific about the geography and lists all of the cities that were surrounding this valley and talks about it. There is no denying where that battle took place. Where we were standing, there's a creek and you know that that had to be nearby because the story specifies it. Like there are some sites like the Valley of Elah where it's like it could not have been anywhere else. It was here. The Cave of Adullam is another one. Can I say that David slept right here? Well, no, that's silly. But can I say I know where the Cave of Adullam is? Yes, because caves don't move <laughs> and they don't build churches on top of caves. Um, not really. Well, they do. They well, I guess they do. Like yeah, not a cave system. I would not recommend they had, they had it on not top built of a Cave on top of Adullam. Of that cave there are sites during the time of Jesus where you I can say these are the steps. steps. Mm-hmm. These are mm-hmm. the steps that the common people would have used to walk up into the temple complex. And it wouldn't have been any other entrance. It was these steps. Mm-hmm. Over time, those entrances have been bricked up by, by other people who control it. But you can say with certainty, because the Bible says Jesus traveled to the temple multiple times a year throughout his life. I'm totally fine saying Jesus walked on these steps. And man, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a special kind of feeling when we all kind of stood around there and acknowledged that. Jesus walked on this sea when we go out to the Sea of Galilee, which is really just a large lake. I'm confident to say that. But then there are other sites, and I think God in his wisdom doesn't give us specificity because 
we can already see what humans have a tendency to do. We get distracted by the location and start to worship the spot rather than focus on the events that happened at the spot. I think God in his wisdom kept it vague mm -hmm. to some degree. This is what I've been playing. Most of us have played Clue. I used to think I was pretty good. Then I married the unofficial world champion and I found humility. I think my problem is I take too long to narrow down the field of possibilities. While I'm turning 90% certainty into 100%, Tracy is moving to the next field of inquiry. I don't want to make a decision prematurely, but I can't afford to spin my wheels forever. In matters of faith, we will never have what the scientific community would call conclusive proof. But the subject of God is too serious to just dismiss by saying we'll never know for sure. How sure do we need to be? And do lingering doubts make us unbelievers? That is an excellent question. That's a would, big question. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I like Clue. I don't think I was ever very good at it. But <laughs> I think we're not called to a blind faith. Uh, I'll start there. I don't. I don't think we're called to just believe the Bible because that's what we've always done, and that's what my parents did, and that's what their parents did. That can be a bad thing because we're getting into a generation of people. Uh, our young people are not okay with that as being the answer. Um, on the other hand, you're absolutely right. I mean, we're we don't have a hundred percent conclusive evidence. Uh, we don't have pictures. We don't have photographic evidence of Jesus or any of that. And we don't need that either. But I think somewhere in the middle is where we fall. You know, we're called to play a game of Clue with the Bible. And we can open up the Bible. And as Craig was kind of talking about earlier, we can dig into it and look at different things that are all connected together and go, oh, man, this is, uh, this is leading me down a path that is affirming my faith and uh, at the same time still leaving areas where I have to make a leap in order to believe. We see throughout the Bible themes that point us to a God who loves us and created us and gives us grace as human beings and wants us to dwell with him in heaven. And that to me is the faith that I want. To, that's where I want to put my faith. That's where mm -hmm. I want to, you know, I can't see heaven and I can't see this God, but I want to believe that that is the end result of it all. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest with you, how these are incredibly important questions to ask. I mean, speaking personally, there are people that are very close to me that have struggled with these questions. I don't think it's inappropriate at all for Christians to ask for something to help them ground their faith in. I think the most dangerous thing that a Christian can do when these questions come up, and I haven't, I haven't asked every Christian, but I would suspect every Christian is going to have these questions at some point in their faith journey and maybe multiple times. The most dangerous thing to do is to not put forth the effort to find answers to them. If you're simply saying, I'm struggling with believing this part about the Bible, or I'm struggling with how God can be described in this way. Because the world tells me that someone who acts that way is not a good God. And I don't know what to do with that. The worst thing is to say, there's no answer to that. 
because I've seen numerous Christians lose their faith simply because they weren't willing to put forth the effort, true effort, to find the answers. Because like Stu said, God does not expect a blind faith. If he did, he would have made a pamphlet that said, I am God, follow me and obey me because I told you so. Mm -hmm. And man, he's done so much more than that. Every book, every passage is grounded and connected to each other. And like we've been doing with, with Appian, and I know many other wonderful apologetics have done before us, showing these are connected with other things in history that we can have absolute certainty in, that they're all anchored to various parts so that when I do get to parts that I, I don't have a clear answer for, or I struggle with finding some kind of proof for, I can go, okay, well, every other time I've questioned God's character or God's account of things, I've been able to find proof that validates it. So I'm going to trust him when he says only eight human beings survived a worldwide flood. I'm going to trust him when he says that Jesus cast demons out of people. Well, no one was there to shoot video of that. I don't know if I'd like to watch the video of that. <laughs> but there are numerous other elements of Jesus' account that we can say with absolute certainty, okay, that, that was real. Luke is one of my favorite gospel accounts because Luke is obsessively compulsive when it comes to historical accuracy. He spends that whole first chapter like, this person was the governor of here, and this person was the procurator of here, and this person was the, like, he wants you to know that he knows what's up. This was actually grounded in history. And then we can go back to the history books and go, hey, well, actually, so-and-so was the governor of that part of Judea. This person was the high priest. So then when he tells me that Jesus drove demons out of someone on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he was accurate on all other accounts. I don't think it's wrong for Christians to have lingering doubts. In fact, I would encourage them, if you're sitting in a Bible class, and I tell this to young people, if you're sitting in a Bible class and something doesn't make sense to you, raise your hand and ask. I would venture to guess that there's someone else in that room thinking the exact same thing. But you've all convinced yourself that you're the only Christian who's ever wondered, would a loving God destroy all of the Amalekites? You're not the first person to ever ask that question. Let's talk about it. The worst thing you can do is to go home and Google it, <laughs> which is what I've seen people do. It's the worst thing in the world. You're going to go ask a secular world view what they think about God. What do you think you're going to find? That is one of the reasons I think we're losing so many young people is they're asking the questions. They're just not asking them to the right people. That is true. Uh, you know, and I, and I would say it, this, this requires a culture within the church that is open to hearing people say, I'm not sure about this element of my faith. That always tends to be a red flag of, oh, oh, oh we, need to, we need to back up. And really, honestly, if we're all being honest with ourselves, we all go through seasons throughout our life of valleys and peaks with our faith. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a month or for 80 years. There are all those points when you're feeling low uh, with your faith and being able to communicate that and talk about certain elements of that is so, so important. But 
unfortunately, what happens sometimes is we just look at it from a negative thing. Oh man, are you falling away? Or you know, whatever the case might be, we just need to treat it as this is a dialogue. And if I'm at a low point in my faith right now, I need to feel okay and swallow my pride and say, this is specifically what I'm struggling with, this element of it. And let's discuss it and let's look at it. And yeah. Instead of just like Craig mentioned saying, oh man, I'm the only one that is at a low point in my faith right now. And if I ask this question, it's going to show my cards and people are going to start to wonder if I'm truly a Christian right. or whatever the case might be. So. Right. You think about Thomas. News had come. The testimony of multiple witnesses had said, Jesus is alive. The vast majority of the apostles were all trying to tell him Jesus was alive. And he said, I'm not going to believe it unless I see this type of proof. And what the apostles did not do was say, there's the door. Yeah. Get out. And what Jesus did not do was, shame on you. You should have believed there were periods in the gospel story where Jesus did condemn them and say, you should have had more faith. Sure. Right. But in that instance, he simply says, this is what you need to believe. Here you go. Here's some proof. Mm -hmm. Here are the scars. Here's my side. Here I'll even eat food in front of you. And then he goes on to commend those of us who can't see the scars and watch him eat and say, ah, blessed are you who believe these things and have faith without this. But it's okay to ask for validation as long as we are willing to take the validation that God is willing to give us. Because if we say, I'm not going to believe the Bible unless I see the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Is that really faith? Right. No, you're trying to get God to work on your yeah. timetable and work yeah. on your plan. That's, that's not submission. That's not faith. But if we say, God, I'm struggling. Help me. Give me something. Help me have a conversation or or read and know something so that I can feel more secure because right now I'm not feeling it. That is an okay prayer right. to pray. Oh, yeah. And you better believe because God's done it in, in my life. Uh, my wife and I have had conversations about this. He's done it in hers. Where You better believe he's going to provide that if we're willing to receive it and hear it, even if it's not what we expect. And, and I would just add to that. We've, we've talked about this recently, Craig and I have taking the word of God and not just putting it into the mind of a high school student or an adult or whoever, where they have the knowledge of the scripture, but putting it on their heart. In our current culture, I think that the church can be guilty of just stuffing knowledge into somebody's head without giving them true application. And what does it mean? And so if you can't move the knowledge from your, from your head to your heart, you're going to lose that young person, yeah, they're going to go find something that they do want to put on their heart, that they are passionate about. Our world is full of knowledge. Our world is so full of knowledge and we can get it at the touch of a, of a finger. What our world is not full of is wisdom and taking that knowledge and, and, and making it part of our lives. I found myself thinking about one of my favorite Old Testament parables in uh, Ezekiel 13, where God describes these people building a wall. There's some kind of retaining wall they need to build, and they're not using any plaster with it. So they figure if we just give it a nice coat of paint, it'll look good, and we'll be done, and we'll have a wall at the end of it. The whole point is to have a wall. And, and I can just see parents of teenagers 
you know, throwing up a wall in the, in the life of their teenagers. We got to make sure they have faith. Got to make sure they get baptized. Got to make sure that they understand, you know, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and et cetera. And they stay off drugs and all that kind of stuff. As long as we can get a wall up there, that, that's the important thing. But there's no substance to it. There's no connection to it. It's not real. And one of these days, it's going to crumble. And we're going to wish we built a better wall than this. We're going to wish that we took our responsibilities more seriously than this. I grew up, most people my age did, with a Bible class full of kids who aren't serving the Lord anymore. I don't know that one generation is any worse than the next necessarily, as I've been preaching at various places over the last 30 years now. I have the curse of Facebook. I'm able to, to look back at these people who I have who I've seen who by all appearances anyway, aren't very interested in spiritual things anymore. And it's hurtful. It looked like we were doing good things. It looked like parents were doing good things. Was I to blame for this? Did I fall short somehow? I don't know. I'll never know. But if we don't make an effort, if we don't try to build something real, addressing these doubts, addressing these questions that we have here, rather than shaming people for not really believing or whatever, I like to think we're beyond that, but if we don't give real substance, real meat to the faith, not just of our young people, by the way, our adults either, then one of these days that faith is going to fail and you know, it's going to be ugly when it happens. Yeah. And I, you know, I want to be quick to commend not just the parents that I'm seeing in, in my generation but commend people like my parents. My father was converted later in life, in his early 20s, very little interest in spiritual things, but eventually turned his life around. And he did. He took us to those Bible classes and taught us the knowledge. And we did do those workbooks where we had to fill in the blanks and and answer yes and no. And honestly, part of me wished I had retained more of that than I did. I didn't retain as much of the knowledge as I wish I had, but I do want to commend the parents when I was a child that I know are still out there doing good things where we could see the gospel in their lives. I could see it. And I do still see it. Thank God in my father where it wasn't just this academic knowledge that he had retained, but it was changing who he was. And so, yes, I, Stu and I have these conversations, our team does certainly, where we can choose to simply notice the people who are leaving. Yeah. And that can be very discouraging, and it is. But sometimes I think we forget to acknowledge the people who are coming in still. The gospel is still affecting lives, and the kingdom is still growing. And uh, the blessing and cursing of Facebook is we're seeing all of the discouraging things, but maybe we're just not noticing enough of the encouraging things. I see, man, I see young people, I'll call them out by name, Dan and Sonia Kane, among others, a young couple that has moved to Sierra Leone to preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. And the impact that they are having over there, it, it, is, it is extraordinary. I know of good families that are in the Northeast that are having incredible response in places like New York and Philadelphia and Boston, We need to continue to commend the people who are doing this well. We need to look back and see, okay, when this didn't work well, why did it not? What can we do to improve on that? 
And it's really all about, okay, parents, children, teachers, what can we do? Let's get fired up. Let's not change the message, but maybe our tactic needs to change. But I tell you what, like uh, my brother-in-law, Justin Dobbs, um, and he's actually a, a contributor to Appian Media. He's helped us with some of our video series and a good bit of our writing. He loves to just go to coffee shops and open his Bible and he'll sit there and read. And he will find that people are attracted to that and will approach him. That's the method that he uses a lot because there are still people out there who are just, they're, they're just anxious for that. They're just waiting for someone to seem welcoming and opening. We need to commend those people for that. You know, parents, what can we do? What has worked that we need to keep doing? What hasn't worked that we need to improve upon? And what are some tactics and potentially some resources that we can use that's really quite a bit at the heart of and the mission of Appian Media? We're trying to give you as many resources as you can, tools as you can, that parents, teachers, groups, uh, you know, like we said, homeschool groups can use to get people excited again about this exciting book. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.